Good afternoon, folks. Uh, welcome to the Maryland State Bar Association Consumer Bankruptcy Section Brown Bag Program on the SBRA, Small Business Reorganization Act, uh, Chapter 11. Uh, it's my pleasure to serve as your co-host with uh, Michael Wolf, who uh, is also uh, a, happens to be a uh, Subchapter 5 uh, trustee as well as Chapter 7 panel trustee. Um, I, uh, just wanted to briefly uh, introduce our uh, wonderful group of panelists that we have um, together with us uh, in presenting uh, on a very timely program. Uh, we have with us uh, Bud Stephen Taman, who is uh, one of the original uh, founding members of the section. Um, he's been around for many years. He was in fact a chapter seven trustee at one point. Um, he is one of the most giving and scholarly people that I've uh, encountered, and it's just an honor to have him as part of the section, and he's really been uh, carrying the torch in a, in a big way, particularly uh, with the uh, advent of coronavirus and, and putting forth so many great substantive programs, which take a great deal of his time and effort, and so for that, we thank him. Um, we also are... Um, we also have on the program um, Elginette Rice, who's one of our uh, assistant United States trustees. She serves as the assistant United States trustee in the Greenbelt uh, division. Before that, she was in private practice uh, with her uh, law, law firm of Welsh, Walsh, Becker, and Rice, which was in uh, Bowie, Maryland, where she practiced for over 15 years. Uh, we are very thrilled to have her as our newest United States trustee here in Maryland. Uh, she's doing a fantastic job. She's already participated in many programs for our section, um, including most recently last month, a program on ethics, which in my view was uh, among so many great programs, it was truly a, a fantastic uh, program. And we hope to carry the torch with that program to make it an annual one, along with our HOA program that we did earlier that Bud participated in, uh, as well as Hopefully, uh, the SBRA will make a tradition as well. Um, we are also uh, accompanied by Catherine Hopkin, who is a partner at Youngkiss, Vidmar, Sweeney, and Mulrennan. She's the president-elect of the BBA and will be the sitting president for the upcoming uh, dues year or section year. Dues year because I'm the treasurer. I'm thinking of it in that way. Um, she's also uh, the vice chair of the Greater Maryland Network uh, of IWIRC, which is the International Women's Insolvency and Restructuring Confederation. Um, and she's also the prior chair of the bankruptcy department of uh, the firm Tidings and Rosenberg. So um, she is truly a uh, phenomenal practitioner and we're grateful to have her uh, on the program. And I believe, if I'm not uh, mistaken, that she uh, filed the very first subchapter five case in our uh, jurisdiction. Um, lastly, we have um, Michael Wolf, um, who co-presents the Brown Bags uh, with me. Him and I have been doing this. I believe this is our sixth Brown Bag program that we've had uh, this year, two of which were uh, messages from uh, our chief judge, uh, clerk of the court, and assistant United States trustees uh, to help give us the updates that everyone was so uh, desperately seeking on uh, the advent of COVID-19 and, and procedures for the meetings of creditors, for hearings, and the evolution of our 
uh, ability to practice uh, bankruptcy law under uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so I'm grateful to have Michael Wolf uh, participating. Um, Mike and I will be fielding uh, questions along the way. They're not gonna be answered in real time. Uh, the, the questions will be cataloged by Mike and I, and we will uh, present the questions uh, following the presentations to uh, the presenter. So please feel free to forward the questions directly uh, to myself or, or Michael Wolf, or, or also through the chat feature. The last thing uh, I wanted to just mention to everyone um, so that you can put it on your radars is we do have a couple upcoming programs uh, that you can save the date for. On uh, August the 14th, we have uh, Brown Bag uh, on secured lender issues that is paneled by Catherine Smith, who's my colleague, uh, Chapter 13 uh, staff attorney, Catherine Smith. Michael Freeman, who's the newly appointed Assistant United States Trustee for uh, Alexandria Division of the Eastern District of Virginia, as well as the District of Columbia, um, and then Luke McQueen. On September the 25th, we have a, a program on student loans that's going to be paneled by Christina Hamilton Eisler and Jeffrey Schlawinick. In October, there was a great thread uh, just yesterday on the listserv that dealt with the question of what is discharged with respect to secured loans, or uh, in this instance, it was a mortgage um, that was treated in a confirmed plan to uh, cure and maintain, and the stay was lifted, uh, and then do you need to uh, propose to modify the plan to obtain a discharge, or is a, is a mortgage discharged if you're just uh, paying outside of the plan? So it engendered very lively debate and discussion amongst the listserv, and uh, because it is something that comes up with such frequency, and because there was a uh, difference uh, of opinions on the topic. We thought it would be a great program. So we're hoping to have Carolyn Crone, um, as well as Leslie Pladna, and hopefully um, William or Bill Feldman from the creditor side to lead that up. So I've, talking, I've spoken uh, and taken up way too much of your time. And so with this, I'll pass it on to the panelists. And thanks again to everyone for attending this program. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for the kind introduction, a very thorough introduction. Good morning, everyone. Um, this program is um, extremely relevant um, in, on so many levels um, that it's, it's almost hard to describe how relevant it is. Um, we actually um, don't expect you to walk out of this program today um, knowing how to do a subchapter five case but if you walk out of here no longer afraid of subchapter S, we will have accomplished our goal. Um, this is a, the challenge that is here today, especially because of the pandemic, requires action on our part, and we should be prepared to try to meet that challenge. And our program is just gonna introduce you to the Small Business Reorganization Act, and as I said, hopefully take some of the fear out of it. Um, our, our program is, it, we have three parts. They dovetail together very well. Um, I'm gonna start off by giving a brief history of the act, and I'm gonna describe certain of the provisions of um, the Small Business Reorganization Act and how they differ <clears throat> from either um, Chapter 11 or a traditional small business case. Um, I'll then turn it over to Jeanette Rice, 
who's going to discuss recent case law. Um, at, well, it's all recent because the law is only in effect for you know three or four months. <clears throat> Jeanette will pass the case or pass the program over to Kate Hopkins, who is going to give some practical um, advice, um, uh, practice pointers, um, words of caution. Um, she's the one who's actually representing a debtor in one of our cases. And um, so she's going to talk more about what's going on in the trenches with, um, from a debtor standpoint. And the whole program as a whole is going to give you a very good view of this act. Um, I would like to um, say that our materials include the PowerPoint that you're looking at. Um, in addition to the PowerPoint, um, you, there, we've attached several cases to the materials that will be made available. Um, and we've also received permission from the American Bankruptcy Institute to supply you with their materials. Uh, the ABI, which is extremely instrumental in the Small Business Reorganization Act, did a webinar on May 7th of 2020, and uh, we have the materials from that webinar, and they've, we've been given permission to disseminate them to the attendees of this program. <clears throat> the materials <clears throat> are, um, I think about 290 pages long. Um, the PowerPoint is 90 pages. My math may be off a little. The PowerPoint is 90 pages. Um, and then there's a, a written, a set of written materials that's 140 pages long. It's written by Judge Paul Bonifel, who's a bankruptcy judge from the Northern District of um, Georgia, Bankruptcy Court from the Northern District of Georgia. And this is his second or third revised set of materials. Um, so with the materials that you're going to have access from this program, plus what we talk about today, um, there's a lot to look at. And we commend the materials to you. Um, and uh, you can take your time and look at them at your leisure to the extent we have leisure. One final thought, um, while um, Jeanette um, Rice is here as a member, as the Assistant U.S. Trustee, um, nothing that she says really needs to be considered to be a position of the U.S. Trustee's office unless she tells you that it is. So please don't, you know, draw any conclusions in that regard from what Jeanette says. Bill, could you uh, do the next slide, please? And then the next slide. The, um, I've, I've, I've said the probable provenance of the Small Business Reorganization Act, because when you look at the history of the act, you, you're not gonna get the beginnings of where I think the beginning was. And um, so I, I'm tracing it from where I believe the beginning of what has become the Small Business Reorganization Act started. Um, but by the mid 80s, it was widely known for many decades prior that chapter 11 was a case that a small business could not really successfully do generally uh, because of the legal fees, um, the costs involved otherwise, and just the general requirements of a business to do a chapter 11 in particular, um, the confirmation process. It is it, it, a chapter 11 confirmation process is very complicated and there's lots of different steps. Um, and that I think the confirmation process increases the cost 
exponentially of a chapter 11. Uh, but because of all that, small businesses really weren't, it wasn't made for a small business. Next slide, Bill. In the mid 80s, Judge Thomas, A. Thomas Small, who was a bankruptcy judge for the Eastern District of North Carolina, developed a fast track program for small businesses in his, in his district. And I remember hearing him talk at the um, Mid-Atlantic Institute on Bankruptcy and Reorganization Practice in the uh, late 80s, where he was describing this uh, fast track program. At that point, I didn't even know what he was talking about. Um, but I heard what he said, and uh, it, it sort of makes a lot more sense to me now than it did then. But he said, my Texaco gas station case is not the same as Texaco. At that point in time, the Texaco case, which I've cited in this PowerPoint, was a major bankruptcy case that was filed in 1987 um, in the Southern District of New York. Counsel for the debtors was Wild Gotchel and Cravath Swain. Uh, that gives you an idea of the type of case it was. And it was also a typical Chapter 11 case, and it was the kind of debtor that Chapter 11 was made for. And Judge Small knew that the cases that he was seeing in his district were not in Ray, Texaco. So he developed this, um, this uh, fast track um, procedure for small businesses that did not appear in the bankruptcy code at all. And I think that the provenance, the beginning of this um, new law is with Judge Small. Next, next slide, Bill, please. Judge Small's fast track program required an early filing of a plan. It provided for the conditional approval of the disclosure statement and holding a combined hearing on approval of the disclosure statement and the plan. All of those things were, were those were unheard of um, in chapter 11 practice at the time that Judge Small instituted this. And um, it took until 1994 before the word small business was even defined in the bankruptcy code. Um, but it was, it was put in as a defined term in the, um, from, by the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1994, and it enabled the debtor to elect small business status. Um, but nothing really came of that. Next slide, Bill. Um, and, and also the term small business is no longer a defined term in the bankruptcy code. Three years later in 1997, Judge Small's fast track procedures were recommended by the National Bankruptcy Review Commission to be incorporated into the bankruptcy code to assist small businesses to effectively reorganize. Um, the National Bankruptcy Review Commission had been set up to study the bankruptcy code to see what changes it could propose. Its report um, initiated the process which led to the enactment of BAP CPA, which incorporated some, but not all of its recommendations. But it did incorporate its small business, re, um, its small business um, recommendations, or a lot of them. Um, in particular, um, the, it made changes to section 1125F um, and 1121E, which provided for a little bit of a streamlined um, confirmation process for a small business. Um, 
at this point, you need to understand that in the in chapter eleven, when you talk about a small business case, that is a, that is a traditional small business case, which is what um, was put in by BAP CPA. It is not the same as a subchapter five case. In fact, I don't think they're even calling a subchapter five case a small business case, and that's where the distinguishing factor is. A small business case. Um, is now um, defined as uh, a case where the debtor is a small business in which the debtor has not elected to proceed under subchapter five. So there are two case, two types of cases in chapter 11. One is the small business case and one is the subchapter five. Both of those deal with small business, but they are different. Next slide, Bill. After BAP CPA, um, the small business um, case, as I said, came into being. Um, it, it, it helped a little bit, um, but it really didn't do that much. And I think actually, um, and I don't know, you know, I may be speaking out of turn a little bit here, but it may have added more stress to a small business than, than helping. Um, but whatever, you know, it, it just didn't really do what it was intended to do. So in 2010, um, the National Bankruptcy Conference proposed that a subchapter five be added to chapter 11. A few years later, the American Bankruptcy Institute established a commission to study the reform of chapter 11. The commission met from 2012 to 2014. Our own Judge Harner was the official reporter of the commission when she was Professor uh, Professor Harner. Of course, we know who she is now. Um, and when uh, Jeanette talks, um, you'll hear a, one of Judge Harner's cases, which also recites a lot of this history of the um, small business, or at least the legislative history behind it. It doesn't go back to Judge Small. You, you won't find any reference to Judge Small, I don't think, anywhere, except this PowerPoint. But I do think it's right. Um, in any event, um, the, the ABI had its commission studying the um, chapter 11 to try to come up with ways to streamline things and make it, make it better. Next slide, Bill. The result was the Small Business Reorganization Act. And the Small Business Reorganization Act, uh, which I guess you could call SABRA, um, it was inspired by the work of both the National Bankruptcy Conference and the ABI's commission. And in my view, uh, the Small Business Reorganization Act substantially streamlined and added substantial benefits to Judge Small's fast track procedures. I sort of doubt that Judge Small ever envisioned what it would become, uh, but he certainly had the vision for knowing that a small business needed more than what Chapter 11 was providing. And it's interesting to me that you can't even say Small Business Reorganization Act without mentioning the name of Judge Small. I think metaphysically that is not a coincidence. I think it has to do with the fact that it developed that way because of Judge Small. At the same time, it's not the only metaphysical uh, Small Business Reorganization Act event. And that's why this, perform this um, program is so relevant. Next slide, Bill. Take a look at this timeline. Small Business Reorganization Act 
was effective, became effective on February 19th, 2020. Two weeks later, Governor Hogan declares a state of emergency and catastrophic health emergency because of the coronavirus. About a little over a month after enactment, Governor Hogan orders all non-essential businesses to shut down at 5 p.m. That was, in other words, you all probably remember the day, the day it happened. There was a, an emergency order. Businesses, non-essential businesses have to shut down at 5 o'clock tonight. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that the Small Business Reorganization Act came along in the nick of time. We have a perfect storm here, and we have the small business being the ship that is caught in the storm, and we have the Small Business Reorganization Act as the rudder that can take it out. Next slide, Bill. We all know this. This is self-evident. Uh, what COVID-19 has done financially to the world and in particular to small businesses. What small businesses are, um, have been affected by the shutdown and, and gradual reopening, if they are reopening, there's unpaid salaries, unpaid taxes, suppliers, rent, mortgages, very limited cash flow from either a lack of business or the slow reopening, uh, or they're two of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. Um, the point is, the small businesses have really suffered um, incredibly um, by the pandemic, and that suffering is um, only just beginning. Next slide, Bill. And take a look at the purpose of the Small Business Reorganization Act. I mean, it's designed to dismiss small, small business debtors by simplifying the bankruptcy reorganization process and rendering it less expensive than a traditional Chapter 11 case. It just, as I said, it could not have come along at a better time. Um, it's still going to be an expensive case. It will be less expensive. And I think primarily that is because confirmation is not as cumbersome in a small business reorganization case. Um, but it also uh, gives, um, some additional benefits to a debtor, and it just streamlines the procedure. And I'm now gonna go into some selected provisions, not all of the provisions, but some of the, I'm highlighting some of the uh, differences uh, that exist in the Small Business Reorganization Act and how they differ uh, perhaps from either Chapter 11 or the, or the traditional small business case. Um, the filing eligibility um, on the day of filing, um, the debtor who, uh, what it doesn't say here, but the debtor must be engaged in a business or a commercial activity. Um, that is not an intuitive statement as many of the things aren't. Um, and it, you know, the courts are going to have to decide if a debtor is um, engaged in business or a commercial activity based on the facts of the case. On the, um, there's a, uh, a debt limit, um, not, ex not counting COVID-19 changes, the, the liquidated non-contingent secured and unsecured debt cannot exceed $2,725,625, not counting debts owed to one or more affiliates or insiders, and um, at least half of the debt 
has to have arose from the debtor's commercial or business operations. Next slide, Bill. The CARES Act raised the debt limit to seven and a half million dollars, um, and that will expire on March 26, 2021. So for cases filed through that date, the debt limit is 7.5 million uh, for cases filed on March 27th, probably March 27th, um, definitely uh, March 28th. Um, the debt limit is the regular um, 2.6 million. And uh, single asset real estate cases are excluded um, either under, they can't be uh, subchapter five cases and they can't be traditional small business cases. Next slide, Bill. The debtor must voluntarily elect to proceed under the Small Business Reorganization Act. If the election is not made, the case, uh, which will be a small business case, um, if the uh, dollar amount is, uh, you know, uh, if the debts are under the dollar amount, it's going to proceed as a traditional small business case. And in that case, um, in a case like that, there will there'll be US trustee fees. Um, there'll be an absolute priority rule, which will apply. I'll discuss that in a minute. And um, the debtor will not be able to cram down secured debts secured solely by a principal residence. Um, that's if there's no election made um, to proceed as a Small Business Reorganization Act or a Subchapter 5, five debtor. Next slide, Bill. As I, um, so another of the provisions, there are no quarterly fees paid to the U.S. Trustee's Office as there are in every other Chapter 11 uh, proceeding. Um, however, a trustee is automatically appointed in each small business reorganization case. That's, that's a difference in, from regular Chapter 11 practice. That may probably cancel out the lack of quarterly fees paid to the U.S. Trustee's Office. Um, while I think it's uncertain how a subchapter five trustee is going to be paid, it's probably the case um, that in the average case, there'll be more fees paid to a subchapter five trustee than quarterly fees to the U.S. trustee program. But, uh, you know, I don't have any statistics to really prove that. So it may be a wash, it may not. But those are, those are two, two points of the Small Business Reorganization Act case that make it a little different. Next slide, Bill. The plan confirmation, which I think is one of the um, major benefits here, um, it's streamlined in two important um, areas and, and possibly more, but two primary areas. Uh, the first is that there is, unless the court orders otherwise, there's no disclosure statement. Um, that in itself um, cuts out a lot of proceedings and a lot of the expense of the case. Now, the plan um, in a Small Business Reorganization Act case has to include some of what would be in a regular disclosure statement, but there is no separate proceeding and no separate disclosure statement. Um, so the confirmation is streamlined by reducing the procedures to one as opposed to two, um, and that really does help. Next slide, Bill. 
this is probably the most important streamlining provision, um, I think, in the confirmation process. There is no absolute priority rule in a subchapter five case. What this means is um, this, this almost makes the plan very similar to a chapter 13 plan where you pay unsecured creditors uh, pro rata share. General chapter 11 practice is that um, general unsecured creditors have to be paid in full or the debtor has to kick assets into the case. Um, and that's called the absolute priority rule. It is a killer. Um, it eliminates many confirmations because debtors can't come out from under it. And it's eliminated in the Small Business Reorganization Act case. Next slide, Bill. Finally, um, the debtor is allowed um, under very limited circumstances to cram down a security interest secured solely by the primary residence if the security, if the debt was not used primarily to acquire the residence and was used primarily in connection with the small business. Um, I think the, the use of the term residence in this provision is a little strange. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to be applied in the case of a corporate debtor, whether it'll mean, you know, uh, the headquarters or not, you know, home headquarters. It's hard to say. Case law will develop in that regard. But the only other place a provision similar to this applies are, is in the bankruptcy code in any place is in Chapter 12. Chapter 12 allows it without as many restrictions, but um, it, doesn't, it doesn't apply anywhere else. Next slide, Bill. For the first 130 days of the existence of the law, uh, through June 30th, 517 cases were filed under the Small Business Reorganization Act case, and 128 cases have been filed as traditional small business cases. In Maryland, um, we're not sure if these numbers are totally correct. This information is I got this off the ABI, ABI's website, but we were talking before the program and we're not sure if the cases that I'm saying that were in Maryland as of June 7th are exactly correct or not, but it's close. In Maryland, there were seven cases filed under the Small Business Reorganization Act, seven in Virginia, one in the District of Columbia, uh, non-small uh, business or regular traditional small business cases Two were filed in Maryland, two in Virginia, none in DC. Next slide, Bill. When given the choice, um, it's clear that the overwhelming majority of debtors are going to elect to file under the Small Business Reorganization Act. Next slide, Bill. There's a few emerging issues. Um, and there's, that's actually more than a few, but uh, the ones that, you know, uh, these are going to be fleshed out among other issues. Does the debtor satisfy the debt limits? That fight is currently going on in one of our cases now. Um, will the Small Business Reorganization Act uh, be interpreted to be granted retroactive application? That's also being dealt with in, in many cases. And although not related to necessarily the Small Business Reorganization Act, how does the payroll protection plan eligibility fit in with chapter 11? Next slide, Bill. 
I'm making a prediction here. Um, because of the extraordinary relief available to a debtor under the Small Business Reorganization Act, which is actually modeled in many respects after Chapter 12, which provides the most extraordinary relief to a debtor that the bankruptcy code has to offer. Because of that relief, challenges to eligibility are legion. And I, I predict that there's going to be lots of challenges to the eligibility of a debtor uh, under the Small Business Reorganization Act, just as there is for Chapter 12. And that to the extent the debtor overcomes those challenges and wins that fight, the playing field will suddenly become more level than at any time in the debtor's recent past, and the debtor will be able to better focus on the fighting chance that has been provided by the Small Business Reorganization Act. And with that, I'm going to turn the program over to Jeanette. Thank you. Thank you, Bud. Um, I was, I've been introduced, but I'm Jeanette Rice. I'm the Assistant U.S. Trustee in Greenbelt. And I'm going to recap the um, subchapter five cases that have been filed um, and also decisions and discuss some important issues that intersect between regular chapter 11 cases and subchapter um, five cases. And so our office, we, monitor the subchapter five cases the same as we monitor regular chapter 11 cases, except um, in those cases, um, we don't collect a fee, but we do the same things. We conduct the initial debtor interview, um, hold the 341 meetings, file pleadings, attend all the hearings. And we also appoint in each case a subchapter five trustee from our pool of trustees and um, what we do when we appoint the trustees, we consider the nature of the debtor's business and also the skills get and experience of the trustee and try to pair those up to have a good outcome. Bud said that the um, ABI has only five cases. We actually have nine subchapter five cases in Maryland. Some of the cases converted from regular 11 cases, um, I believe two of them, and one, which is Judge Harner's decision, converted from a Chapter 7. And so we have nine total. I provided a list. So if you can go to the next slide. Of the cases, if anybody's interested in uh, following these cases, I provide the case number. Um, it's very interesting because the statute is new and also the case is new and so you can see the case law being made in real time. Next slide. So um, with respect to the Maryland cases, if you look at the cases previously, um, we've had, we have a variety of cases. We've had some that were existing cases um, that were regular chapter 11 two in Greenbelt that converted um, from a regular traditional chapter 11 to subchapter five. They were cases that were filed before the statute and then they converted after the statute. And in both cases, none of them filed a motion to convert. They just basically amended their schedules. And is, if you can see from the cases um, that I provided, I think we can summarize um, the important takeaways from all those cases in going forward, because certainly now the statute's been passed, there's not going to be a situation where 
um, we're dealing with um, we're dealing with you know cases that were filed prior to the statute, but I think there are good takeaways um, from what has gone before to with respect to anybody who maybe wants to file seven now and then later convert that to a subchapter five. Next slide, please. So the takeaways um, is that the conversion is not done by anything special. You don't have to file a motion. You just file an amended petition. The other um, thing is that the deadlines are not automatically reset once you convert the case. So you need to file a motion to extend the subchapter five deadlines. Um, most of the cases seem to hold that the conversion itself um, can constitute adequate grounds to extend the deadlines, but also the court considers that the conversion is made in good faith and the conversion does not prejudice creditors. Next slide. So if you see um, for the uh, Maryland case here, um, this is Judge Hunter's case that um, We see Judge Harner's case that we're dealing with here. And um, oh my gosh. And in Judge Harner's case, this is, um, no, not in Twin Pines. I'm sorry, I must have gone advanced uh, one slide too much. You can go back to the next one, I'm sorry. So I was, uh, yes, this one. Um, this is Judge Harner's case. And this is a Maryland case where the debtor was a chapter seven debtor and they um, wanted to switch to a subchapter five case. And both the, sub, the subchapter five uh, statute was already in effect and the debtor had already filed for chapter seven. And Judge Harner's opinion, I think, is a great um, opinion with respect to the considerations for converting. Um, one of the things, um, she looked at was that the fact that the deadlines had expired, which is there's a 60 day deadline that you have to um, have a status conference and a 90 day deadline for filing the plan, both had expired. And so she agreed after looking at all the considerations to um, extend those deadlines so that the debtor could um, proceed with subchapter five from a chapter seven case. And one of the things um, she emphasized in this case is that the judge needs to do a very fact-specific analysis to make sure that the conversion is in good faith and that the creditors are not going to be prejudiced by the conversion. Next slide. This is also um, a conversion case and in a different jurisdiction, but I think it kind of supports the same points we made. This is where um, in Twin Pines, if you see that, the debtor um, elected to convert to subchapter five and their case had been pending for approximately a year before the statute um, went into effect. And the court still allowed that even after all that time um, the case had been pending. Um, and the court's rationale is when you convert um, to subchapter five that you can't be held accountable for the deadlines basically because the deadlines had expired um, way before um, the uh, conversion was contemplated. And so the court basically allowed the conversion and extended the deadline so that the creditor, um, the debtor could pursue subchapter five even after the case had been pending for a long time. Next case. 
Next slide. So this is interesting, and I'll talk a little bit about this uh, case more properties later. But in this case, the debtor's case was pending um, on the effective date of the statute, and they asked to convert to subchapter five, um, even though prior to the statute being effect, they did not meet the definition as a small business debtor. The court still allowed the conversion because the statute changed the definition of what a small business debtor was, and then the debtor became eligible under SBRE and the court allowed the conversion. Next slide. This is another conversion case, and this is Ventura. Uh, we provided all these cases, so I'm going through these very quickly, and you can read them. But um, in this case, the court then allowed a debtor to proceed under subchapter five, even though this, was, this case was pending 15 months, which is over more than a year um, before SBRA went into effect. And in this case, um, the court, the creditor had actually filed a competing plan in the regular Chapter 11 case, and the court still allowed the conversion to um, Subchapter 5 and did not find that even though the creditor had gone to the trouble of generating competing plan if they were prejudiced and still allow the conversion. So I think that generally the cases seem to favor um, conversion uh, even when you could say there may be some prejudice to the creditors such as in this in the Ventura case. Next slide. So um, this is these are cases and all these cases even though they're new cases, uh, when people file for conversion of their motions, they cite each other because this is the only um, authority that they have. So um, if you look at some of the newer cases, they're citing all these cases that have happened in just the last few months to support their position. Um, in uh, Reprogressive Solutions, this is another case where um, the uh, case had been pending uh, long before the SBRA's effective date, and the court held that there was no legal reason that the debtor could not redesignate as a subchapter five. And this, a lot of these cases address also the issue about retroactive application of statute. And I think almost in all cases, except maybe one, um, the court has found that that was not an impediment to allowing a pending case to convert um, to subchapter five. I don't think this issue is going to come up, but I think what's important about these cases is that um, even if we have an existing case now that was not pending prior to the statute being into effect, that there are a lot of good points and takeaways to support um, the position of converting uh, to, or maybe even to oppose it from these cases. So I think there's still good law to be applied um, even in different circumstances. Next slide. So, one of the issues that is going to come up, as Bud said, is the eligibility for subchapter five. There's not a lot of cases on this, but um, there are a few. And so the eligibility requirements you see I have there on the slide, and one of them is the debt limit. Currently, that debt limit has been expanded to $7.5 million under the CARES Act. Um, and that will be in effect until 2021, which is next year, if that's not extended by Congress. But so there's going to be, if more 
small businesses are electing to file under this chapter, I think it's reasonable that Bud's prediction that this is going to be a big area of fight between debtors and creditors is a good prediction. But um, the other uh, issue that is going to come up is what is the debt that counts towards the debt limit? Because in calculating the debt for SBRA, you don't include contingent or unliquidated debt. And so where are we going to look to for those definitions and what other chapter might be applicable in looking at the debt limits? Is it going to be 12 or is it going to be 13? Um, and the other provision is one half of the debt must have arisen from business as opposed to personal activities. And of course, single asset uh, debtors can't be, um, real estate debtors can't be uh, debtors under subchapter five. Next slide. So this is a definition of small business debtor under SBRA. And this is the case I talked about previously where the definition of small business debtor has changed under SBRA. So people who might not have fallen under that definition now might for SBRA. And so the only real exclusion now is the debt limit and then the single asset um, real estate debtors are not eligible for SBRA. Next. So this is the case in more properties where um, the debtor um, who had a case that was pending um, on the effective date of the SBRA um, did not actually meet the definition, the old definition of small business debtor, but did meet the definition under the new SBRA statute and was able to convert to um, a subchapter five. Next slide. So I think when we look at the statute, we think when they say the debtor must be engaged in business or commercial activity, that we're thinking it's an ongoing business concern or business concern that's going um, maybe to liquidate. Um, but what happens if the business is now sold, defunct, or closed up, and somebody files and says, I'm a debtor um, and I'm engaged in business? Well, this is an interesting case in rewrite um, where the debtor filed selected to have um, a case under uh, subchapter five and the debtor was an individual who's personally liable for business debt and he met the debt limit he had more than 50 percent was the business debt the issue though was the business was sold closed not active and so he was not actively in business at the time so there was an objection from the u.s trustee's office that said um the debtor should not be eligible because he's not actually engaged in business at this time. The court uh, ruled in favor of the debtor and said that the debtor was engaged in commercial business activity because the debtor had filed the case for the purpose of addressing his business debt that was left over from the business. So, I mean, that court has had a very broad standard of what engaged in commercial or business activity means. So um, that is an interesting uh, case. Next slide. The other issue is the debt limits. They're high now um, and we have one uh, case that people might want to follow. I'm not going to opine about this case, but in the case of parking management, if people want to see what is going on with that, um, there is um, some filings regarding whether or not they qualify as a, uh, under subchapter five because of the debt limit. 
And two motions have been filed. Um, one has been filed by our office, U.S. Trustee, and one by a creditor. And parking management has also filed their response to that. The issue's not been decided yet. But some interesting uh, questions have been raised in that since we have no case law under the new legislation, are we going to look for examples in, in chapter 12 cases or chapter 13 cases in determining um, what the debt limits are um, in sub chapter five cases? One of the interesting issues that's come up in parking management is that the um, debtors rejected some leases and are lease rejection um, debts going to be considered and the debt limits or not. Also, there's some other particular issues unique maybe to parking management, but I think it is an interesting case to follow to see um, how that is going to all develop with respect to the debt limit. Parking management is under the high, higher debt limit, the $7.5 million under COVID-19, the CARES Act. So um, that's what is being litigated, not the lower debt limit. So um, that's an interesting case to follow, and that's in the case list if anybody's interested in following that to see what the court's determination will be regarding um, how the debt limit is calculated. Next slide. Another issue that may come up in uh, subchapter five cases that have come up with respect to regular chapter 11 cases is um, the payroll protection um, plan loans. Um, the Maryland courts, the district court, and now I think um, the bankruptcy court has essentially ruled that um, you can't be a debtor in a bankruptcy case and get a PPP loan because that's the SBA's Small Business um, Administration's position. So in this case, iThrive, which is um, actually just a regular Chapter 11, they had filed asking the court to enjoin the SBA from denying the PPP loan because they were in bankruptcy or in the alternative if the case would be dismissed. Judge Caliota wrote an opinion about it, so you might want to read that opinion. Uh, he elected to dismiss the case rather than enjoin SBA, and his reasonings are set forth in his memorandum in that case. And I think that's applicable because the PPP loan has been extended, and who knows if similar programs will be um, provided by Congress, uh, you know, as long as COVID-19 is an issue. Um, then becomes the issue if this case refiles because, um, you know, refiles either as a subchapter five or chapter 11, how does the fact that they got a PPP loan and what the money was used for, how does that impact uh, the new filing? And those issues need to be determined, but I think it's just an interesting uh, case. And I think certainly anybody who's doing chapter 11s should read uh, Judge Catliota's memorandum. Next. And, you know, in, in I thrive, the case was dismissed, but Judge Catlodo and the issue that was not addressed is what happens to the payment of professional fees in the cases if you dismiss a case just to get a PPP loan, but you intend to refile? What happens to that? That was not addressed. In this case here, where I have slide bills, um, this is a case where initially um, the same situation occurred where the debtor had asked that the case be dismissed, and this is a subchapter five case. Um, so that they could get a PPP loan. And the court dismissed the case, but the professionals were objecting saying, hey, what happens is if you file um, a new case, we lose our priority. We want our fees dealt with in this case and not to be dealt with in a new case where we're just the same as any unsecured creditors. Um, 
And what happened is the court then uh, basically reconsidered and set in um, an order that the professional fees would be handled in the dismissed case and gave them 40 days to do so, so that the professionals weren't prejudiced by the fact that the case was dismissed only to obtain a PPP loan. Next slide. Most people um, may be aware that in the subchapter five cases, you have um, a, an appointed trustee, subchapter five trustee, and it is contemplated that the trustee would not generally employ professionals to help them like a lawyer or an accountant. And that is what the statute contemplates. And so in this case, this is Pendler Heating, um, the trustee asked um, the court to allow the trustee to employ professionals and that was denied. And the outcome of that is that the trustee has to identify a very specific need that employment of an, the trustee employing an attorney or other professional um, would be appropriate in subchapter five case. And I think that burden is higher than in a regular um, chapter 11 case. And um, the reason is not all of our subchapter five trustees that we selected, even in Maryland, we have a pool of trustees. Not all of them are attorneys. Uh, some are accountants, some are real estate professionals. And so, um, you know, maybe they might need to hire an attorney, but they need to demonstrate a special need to do so. Next slide. In Maryland, two of our cases that were filed were healthcare cases. And so, the issue came up is that ordinarily when you file a case that's a healthcare business in any chapter, uh, the default is that the court needs to appoint a healthcare ombudsman unless you can demonstrate that the appointment of a healthcare ombudsman is not necessary. So it's to remind you that if you have a healthcare case, the burden is on the debtor to get that motion filed to the court and to appropriately demonstrate that you don't need to have a healthcare ombudsman um, employed because the default is one will be up and um, appointed and it's our office's duty then to you know appoint one. So please remember to keep that in mind. Um, otherwise, I've seen the court just issue show cause to the debtor if they don't take any proactive um, steps when these cases are filed. Next slide. So an interesting issue that's come up and has not really reached us with subchapter five cases is that in regular cases, we've seen with COVID-19, the continuing problems, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon, where lots of businesses who brick and mortar retail, especially um, where they rely on like consumer foot traffic to come to the stores. And that can't happen because of shutdowns or you know either full shutdowns of retail stores or partial ones, um, that they can't get on with restructuring or even liquidating because they just don't have the customers, the foot traffic to sell um, the assets. In several cases, many now actually, these regular chapter 11 debtors have asked the court to basically suspend their bankruptcy case and also to provide extraordinary relief in the form of not um, forcing them to um, make rent payments, uh, not allowing them to be evicted from premises. Um, and my, this has not happened in a subchapter five case, but it could happen if these, um, the provisions from the government shut down 
because of COVID-19 continue, is that really applicable where subchapter five contemplates as these cases move very quickly that somebody could apply to the court either under one of these statutory provisions to say that um, because of forces beyond our control, we can't proceed at fast pace and we want this case suspended or slowed down. Um, that's not been answered, but I think it's been answered in regular chapter 11 cases. And I think it's only a matter of time before that question comes to a subchapter five case. Next uh, slide. Uh, these are the two provisions that the court has um, ordered, uh, have relied on to suspend cases and provide extraordinary protection to Chapter 11 debtors who have been impacted by COVID-19, um, 11 USC 305, and next slide, and 11 USC 501A. And so I think this is going to be an issue we may see relatively soon in a subchapter five case. So that concludes my material. Next is Kate Hopkin, who will um, give us some practice point um, and precautions. Uh, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jeanette. Uh, Bill, if you could take down the slides and pin my video instead, please. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us today for this um, important topic. Uh, as Brian mentioned, I did file the first SBRA case in Maryland. I also chaired the committee uh, which was tasked by the Bankruptcy Bar Association to work with the court and the clerk and the UST office to develop the new rules and forms. So the SBRA is very near and dear to my heart and I was absolutely thrilled to have an opportunity to move forward with the case. Um, I did want to note before I begin that uh, once we pull the slides back up, uh, there is Brian Tucci's email address if you have any questions for the end. Uh, please email them to Brian, and I uh, will uh, try to keep this moving quickly so we can save some time for questions. Uh, so my topic is, uh, instead of PPP, which we've all been hearing a lot about, uh, mine is PPPP, Practice Pointers and pr Practitioner Precautions. I wanted to go over some more, um, more nuts and bolts issues with these cases, and this will be really helpful for anybody on today's, uh, you know, who is looking at today's presentation who wants to file one of these cases. Uh, so I, I will mention my case that I filed, which was Warner Construction Consultants. Um, I will show you one of the documents I filed in that case, uh, but we are heading to confirmation in five days. So it has been a successful case, and we have a consensual plan in that case. Uh, and Michael Wolf was our SBRA trustee. So um, I want to mention that was filed the day before Governor Hogan declared the state of emergency. So it's uh, all, as Bud said, has been very timely. Um, I'm not going to put the slides up. I will pop them up once in a while, but the materials are available for anybody who wants to look at any of the references that I'm talking about. Um, Pre-filing considerations, these are things, you know, at, at all of us who practice in the bankruptcy world, consumer or commercial, um, think about things before we file a case. And these are really important in these SBRA cases. As Bud mentioned, now with the new cram down provisions and the elimination of the um, new value requirement, it becomes a little easier to think about how you get out of the case. Um, but you must always have an exit strategy before you even uh, think about filing a, a petition. Um, you need to think about whether the debtor would be best having a sale, uh, a 363 sale, or a plan, a liquidating plan that provides for a sale, 
or what we call the bootstrap plan, which is more of a plan that's funded by either avoidance actions typically or through the debtor's op continued operations, um, which is critical for these SBRA cases because of the requirement to commit the disposable income of the debtor. Um, you'll need to think about post-petition financing issues. Uh, does a secured lender have liens on, uh, on any property that's generating income that the debtor's using? Um, you need to look at the code provisions that deal with post continuation of post-petition lien on proceeds and figure out if there is some need for any financing or debt facility. For individuals, this is less common, but uh, if the individual is receiving rental income from rental properties, you also need to take a look at that, be thinking about those issues before you file. Um, also, cash collateral issues, whether you'll need a cash collateral order stemming through the post-petition financing uh, analysis, whether you need a cash collateral order with your secured lender. Uh, we had uh, Citibank, it was our secured lender, and I was happy to see they relaxed some of the more draconian cash collateral requirements, um, recognizing that the SBRA cases, you know, really need to be more streamlined. Um, and then, of course, you'll need to consider, before you file the petition, you need to think about how voting will shake out, um, think about rejection claims uh, on any leases. Um, those generate those generate claims as of the petition date, as Jeanette mentioned, with respect to the PMI debt issue, uh, debt limit issues. Um, so you need to start thinking about the classes of creditors and whether you can have a consensual plan, um, which although is not necessary, really does keep the cost and uh, and uh, the the expense and 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 the uh, process much more uh, smooth for your debtor. Um, and then one other thing to think about before you file is, um, you know, to have a debtor team meeting. Uh, typically, you want to meet with the debtor's principals, um, with their key employees, and talk them through what the bankruptcy process will look like. Many of you um, who handle consumer cases already do this with your consumer debtors, um, but you do need to walk the debtor team through you know, uh, just basic uh, bankruptcy issues, don't pay old debts, um, if there's cash collateral issues they need to be thinking about. And then consider, you know, for a mid-sized case, um, now with the debt limit increased, um, sometimes use of a, of a public relations firm um, might be appropriate if it is a business like a restaurant or um, something where the public uh, might be uh, might have some concern over the Chapter 11 filing. That is not typical, but it's just something to keep in mind. Sometimes that expense can be well worth it um, if it can continue uh, customers coming and, and, and utilizing debtor services and, and goods. So those are all pre-filing issues. Um, now I'm going to talk about issues that arise during the case. Um, very first thing uh, with any case, you'll have your IDI and you need to think about who, if the debtor has the uh, someone someone internally who can handle the reporting, if there is a um, comptroller or uh, a CFO or for a smaller business, maybe it's the bookkeeper, but you need, you need to identify someone who can handle the reporting obligations, um, bring that person to the IDI, obviously and uh, make sure that you don't need to retain some other professional. If you do, you'll need to uh, consider that cost and uh, make sure you line somebody up before you file. Um, but typically for a smaller case, you'll probably be able to handle a lot of that through the debtor's staff. That's the hope anyway. 
um, and avoid, avoid additional expense. Um, but under uh, section 1116.1, within one week of the petition, you still need to file the balance sheet, the statement of operations, the cash flow statement, and the federal income tax return. Now, there is a provision uh, later on in that section that allows you to simply file a statement that no such report was prepared for any or all of those. But I typically try to have the debtors generate those. If, if the debtor is using QuickBooks, there's no reason they can't have much of that um, because obviously the U.S. Trustee's Office will want to see some of that. And I find that it helps um, facilitate creditor negotiations if you have stronger historical financial information um, rather than just what's happening through the monthly operating reports. So 1116 is the section to look at for the reporting requirements at the beginning of the case for the small business debtors. Uh, with respect to monthly operating reports, the reports are abbreviated for the small business debtors um, so that it's not as cumbersome, although that is still an expense your debtor is going to have to deal with is the operating requirements, which, you know, for a small debtor also takes time and, and focus away from operations. So um, you need to work through the debtor with the monthly reports. Uh, again, it was previously mentioned there's no quarterly trustee fees. For a small business case, you're not typically generating huge quarterly fees, um, which are measured by the debtor's disbursements, uh, but uh, you know you will have the SBRA trustee fees to pay, which you can address through the plan. So you, your client will get a little reprieve in not having to pay the quarterly fees. But frankly, the SBRA cases move so quickly, by the time you would have been assessed the first quarter, you're having to start thinking about uh, the plan and how you're gonna pay your trustee through the plan. So um, you get a couple months, but you need to be cognizant of the trustee fees. Um, that's one reason I highly recommend that as soon as your trustee is identified, um, you must reach out to the trustee immediately. There's a lot of things to discuss on that first call to the trustee. Uh, I know Mike's on the, on the call and um, he was very helpful in the beginning of the case, talking through some issues like the fees, what were expectations on both sides with respect to participation. There's obviously statutory duties, but um, there is a, a wide range on how involved um, the trustee thinks he or she needs to be or how involved they should be or uh, what their role is. So it's critical to reach out in the beginning and, and get an understanding and, and, and for you to prepare the debtor for um, the role that the trustee is, the SBRA trustee is going to play. As, as uh, Mike Wolf always says, that, that designation is a misnomer. Um, unless the, uh, there's the uh, conversion to the, uh, to the uh, more of the chapter 11 trustee, but um, the trustee also should be given all of the background information. It can be really helpful to, you know, things that are not disclosed uh, on the docket might be really helpful for the trustee to understand why the case had been filed or, you know, especially if you're not gonna have first day motions or significant first day motions. Um, and then also, it is helpful to start just uh, mentioning to the trustee what the plan is going to look like, even if you only know it's going to be a, a sale plan or if you want to do a bootstrap plan and you have some ideas. Um, the trustee's role is to help negotiate uh, creditor discussions for plan confirmation. So the earlier you can start talking to your trustee about those issues, the, the better off you'll be. Um, there are uh, there are 
there's a status conference uh, that, that happens uh, at the beginning of the case, and there's a report that needs to be filed prior to that uh, status conference. So the, the status con conference occurs 60 days in, and the report has to be filed 15 days prior. So you'll fi file it 45 days into your case. Um, Bill, and if you could pull up the PDF document, um, which is the pleading, the 1188C. So I uh, wanted to show everyone what it looked like in Warner Constructions. Um, Bill, it's not in the slideshow, but it's the separate PDF document. There we go. So this is the 1188C report. Uh, this is a copy of the actual report I filed in my client's case. Um, as you can see, you'll start off by telling the court uh, and parties in interest what type of plan you want to pursue. Here, we were going for a consensual plan. We really thought we would get the votes and, and we had already started talking to creditors. Um, reasons for the type of plan, uh, you can read this later, but we had already come up with our plan funding mechanism as well as started to reach out to our creditors. And so we included that information in section two. And Bill, if you could scroll down to three, please. And then you have to let the court know who you've talked to already and then the nature of communications. Um, here we also talked a little bit about uh, a tax claim that we were hoping to adjust with an amended return. And then again, um, if you scroll down, Bill, on, on uh, item five, the efforts you've made to formulate the plan, uh, we had already started working on the first draft. And there is a draft plan available um, that my committee had worked on that's very helpful, um, which I believe is posted on the bankruptcy court website. Um, I don't use that, I don't use that form just because there's other things I want in my plan that I, that I typically include. It's a really good starting point and it does comply with uh, 1190 and 1191 of the SBRA. And then uh, six is timing. The plan has to be filed within 90 days or the debtor needs to request an extension. Um, and the, here there's, there's no ability for a creditor to submit a competing plan, but you really do need to get the plan filed within 90 days. So one uh, topic that's been debated, debated uh, against some of the commercial practitioners is whether you could file a plan and then amend it. There is nothing prohibiting amendment uh, or continued amendments of a plan. But again, you don't really want to be uh, experiencing the cash burn of spending months and months in a chapter 11. It defeats the purpose of the SBRA, which is very quick administration. So while you can, uh, you know, if you need to amend the plan once or twice because your creditors are dragging their feet, hopefully your trustee would get involved, but um, you do need to be cognizant of that deadline. I, I think that, uh, Bill, could you scroll down to the next page, please? And then additional information, anything else that is important here, we talked about some avoidance actions and a foreign tax refund that were going to be critical components of our plan funding. So um, just information you want other parties to start um, digesting before the plan is filed. Um, Bill, and you can take that down, please. So again, that's 45 days into your case. You can see that you really need to have, uh, you need to be close to getting a, you know, pretty final framework on your plan. In our case, we had already started drafting it. Um, so these cases go, go quickly in terms of, of your regular chapter 11s. Um, items that 
to, you need to think about for the plan, you can confirm a consensual plan or a non-consensual plan. So if you look at section 1190, which is contents of the plan, um, and then 1191, which is confirmation of the plan, 1129 is incorporated, which, which those are the regular requirements for a chapter 11 plan. And then there are certain portions of 1129 which are excluded for SBRA, and that's what uh, that's where you get into the um, new value rule and the fair and equitable if there are, if you don't have a consensual plan. If you have a consensual plan where you have every class of creditor voting, um, and that means that all of the voting creditors you need half in number and two thirds in value, then you're only dealing with 1129A. You never deal with 1129B2, and that is what is implicated in 1191. So that you don't really even get into the fair and uh, into the sort of fair and equitable standards in 1191 if you've got a consensual plan. Um, you don't need to have really rely on on a statutory cram down. You may have a permissive cram down if your creditor has agreed to the treatment that you're proposing. Um, but one nice feature of the consensual plan, obviously, you avoid uh, contested plan confirmation, which is expensive. You avoid having to bring in additional witnesses uh, for plan confirmation, but you also uh, permit the debtor to make its own distributions, which saves a lot of money. You know, over course of three to five years, um, the debtor can make its own distributions instead of your SBRA trustee. And also um, the trustee's role, the trustee is discharged earlier for the consensual plan. So, um, you know, that, that's why the trustee is there to help you get a consensual plan with your creditors. And I will tell you in my experience, when I was talking to my creditors, it was a much different conversation for this plan because of the cram down. Uh, you know, if the creditors don't agree, you have a very strong plan B, which is the non-consensual cram down. Um, so I think that it is, uh, you know, you put a lot of effort into trying to get a consensual plan. If you cannot get a consensual plan, then 1191 um, together with 1129, uh, it invokes 1129B2, and that's when you would look at the 1191 standard with respect to committing all the disposable income of the debtor over the period of three to five years. Um, you don't need to negotiate with creditors if you're going to go down the non-consensual route, um, and that fair and equitable requirement is automatically established if you take a look at 1191C, um, as long as you're committing that disposable income. Um, and another nice feature about the non-consensual plan, um, you can pay your administrative expenses, um, or if you're an involuntary, if you were originally in a voluntary case, your involuntary expenses, um, you can pay those over the life of the plan, even if the claim holder doesn't agree. So it does give you more time to pay administrative expenses. Uh, so you may need to do that. Um, if you can't get an agreement with all your admin claim holders, then you do have a longer payment period uh, for the non-consensual plans. So that's important to note, that's an 1191E. And again, these materials will be available if you wanna look at any of these references. Um, if you are, uh, if you don't have a sale plan, you have a bootstrap plan, you're going to fund the plan through the debtor's future operations, um, then your projections are really gonna be key. Now you have to include projections anyway under 1190, um, but uh, 
you're going to be able to get the plan confirmed, you know, you still have a feasibility requirement so that even if your creditors accept the plan, if a creditor objects as to feasibility because your projections don't make any sense, then you're still not going to be able to get confirmed. So although these are wonderful tools for plan voting issues, you still need to have a debtor that can fund uh, the plan. And so, um, you know, cram down does not equal feasibility. You need to pay attention to those issues. Um, and you may need to employ a professional if you don't have a debtor that can really put together sound projections or you're concerned there's going to be a contested hearing um, and you are, uh, you know, if you question questions about your debtor's ability to testify, um, then those are things you need to be thinking about as well. Um, you also, your debtor should be factoring into the projections, you know, things like maintenance, um, replacing technology or equipment, inflation. So, you know, in addition to projecting the income and the typical expenses, there's other categories of expenses you need to build in a cushion as well. So uh, you also would want to tie in the historical financial performance of the debtor. So the projections aren't just out of nowhere, uh, or if the projections are significantly different than the debtor's historical financial um, statements would show, you need to be able to explain why. Sometimes there's a legitimate reason. They were bogged down in litigation or they didn't repair something in their primary you know, central location that they were operating out of and that's gonna get repaired. Or There's lots of reasons, but you need to be able to explain that and convince the court that the projections are good. Um, you'll still have, you know, till issues for secured claims. So the SBRA didn't um, eliminate all of the problems that Chapter 11 de debtors face. It just made it easier and quicker for them to confirm a plan. So you still need to be thinking about those to the extent you haven't done a full-blown Chapter 11. Um, you'll want to brush up on, on those issues as well. Um, and then some other things to think about plan confirmation. Um, you may want to think about objecting to claims prior to confirmation. For voting purposes, um, under 1126A, only a claim holder who has an allowed claim or interest may vote on the plan. Um, so again, because you need that uh, two-thirds in amount and one-half in number, then you know if somebody has an illegitimate claim and it should not be allowed for plan purposes, you want to think about uh, any claims objections. Uh, I'll also mention the um, the uh, issue of putting similar claims into different classes so that you could sometimes, <laughs> if you put the same types of claims into different classes, then you can spread out the voting and you may be able to have a consensual plan, uh, even though you may have some objecting creditors. That is permitted. Um, it's section 1122, like claims can be put in different classes, but it can't be done solely for voting purposes. So there has to be a legitimate reason behind it. And I would refer everybody to the Traveler's case. Um, I think it's in Ray Bryson. It's on uh, 961 F2-496, and that's a Fourth Circuit case. Those are not, that's not in materials, so I'm going to give everyone the citation, but that has a good analysis about what can be called gerrymandering if it's done improperly. Um, but that's another thing to think about, too. Because of the benefits of the consensual plan, you still want to be thinking about all those issues as you put your plan together. So those, uh, I think I'm out of time. So that's uh, some, some, those are some things for you to think about as you move forward with your plan. And uh, I just think it's a wonderful tool and I'm very happy for anyone on this um, presentation who's thinking about filing one. 
um, I would encourage you to look at the ABI materials um, and to go to the court website and look through the forms, um, which are really helpful if you want to start navigating your way through that. Thank you. Thank you again to all of our panelists. Sorry, I had to unmute myself. Uh, that was an excellent program. I'm going to segue into the questions portion and uh, we did receive some uh, numerous questions. I'll go ahead and try to field them uh, together with Michael Wolf in a manner that sort of uh, makes sense. I'll do the best that I can. Um, this is a question for the entire group. Uh, recognizing that subchapter five is still a, a chapter 11 case, what are the pitfalls for a consumer practitioner uh, from a malpractice standpoint from taking on such a case when they are not already experienced with chapter 11 uh, in general. And then uh, Jeanette mentioned that there isn't an absolute right to dismiss like there is in a chapter 13. And uh, if there are assets, does that necessarily mean uh, that it's going to go into a liquidation and, and is there no exit strategy or is there some, uh, is there some sort of uh, negotiating room there and then also, what are your thoughts on obtaining co-counsel? I know that's a lot to throw out at you guys. Well, especially with the more recent cases um, that uh, very much, uh, if not eliminated, um, decimated structured dismissals, um, you, you really should not be filing a Chapter 11 unless there's a way to get out of it. And that's what he's talking about with the pre-filing considerations. So, I mean, it, you could see through today's presentation, there are a lot of Chapter 11 issues that come up. Uh, so I would recommend someone who has not been, um, who has not run a Chapter 11 case before, a co-counsel is not a bad idea. Um, you have to justify the expense of, of two attorneys and two firms if you're going to do that. Uh, so you have to do it efficiently. But um, I'll defer to my other panelists. But I think you need to be very careful about filing a case if you don't have some grasp of the typical Chapter 11 issues. Pardon me. Should I go? Please. I, um, I agree with what Kate just said. Um, as far as the fee, though, um, you can work out a fee arrangement um, whereby the client does not incur the cost of two attorneys. Um, I mean, if you need to co-counsel with another attorney, um, the client shouldn't pay the freight for that. And um, what you can do is when the two attorneys work together, um, they can split one hourly rate. And when the attorneys work separately on separate functions, um, then they can each separately bill. And in that sense, the client is not paying for two attorneys. Um, you do have to be careful of that. The fees have to be approved by the bankruptcy court, and they are cognizant of um, multiple attorneys billing, even in the same firm. If two or three attorneys are having a conference, they're not really all going to be able to bill together. Um, so you, you do need to be cognizant of that, and it can be done. Um, if you've never done a Chapter 11 before, it makes perfect sense to find someone that you can work with and, and co-counsel the case. You have to understand that each attorney is responsible for the entire case. You, you can parcel out work, but you're both responsible as attorney of record for, for the entire case. Um, but 
Um, Co-counseling is a, is a way to get started. Um, and um, as long as you're, you can be compatible and as long as there aren't going to be any fee disputes, it can work. Um, if, I, I would you know, say though, Brian, if you're thinking about an individual, uh, chapter 11 for an individual, it does more closely mimic the 13, but I do still think, you know, with the monthly operating report requirements and things like that, um, you want to have somebody to guide you. But, um, you know, there are going to be fewer traditional 11 issues in the individual case. So things like cash collateral and post-petition financing, you know, might, that may be more practical for an individual 11. I also would, I, I would add that the, you do have a trustee. The trustee, though, is not going to take over and manage your case. Uh, as Kate said, you know, we collaborated in the very beginning of the case, but uh, I knew that Kate, you know, knew what she was going to do with this case. We talked about it right up front. So my role became less and less as Kate took over and managed her case. So don't get into the case thinking because you are going to have a trustee appointed that you're going to be able to slide and not be able to do the work that's needed. But, uh, but the trustee could be helpful. Trustee has some experience and could, in the very beginning, kind of guide you a little bit, make sure you do this, this, and give you your checklist. Uh, so uh, I agree with Kate that in an individual Chapter 11, as somebody who is an experienced Chapter 13 practitioner, um, they could they could manage their way through a, a sub five case. And you, also, you also have to understand that the trustee um, does not have the uh, fiduciary duty or the duty of loyalty to the debtor. Um, everybody's interest is different, so um, it's important to keep the relationships separate as you as you go through this. Next question. Thank you all. Um, Several times it was mentioned the concept of the consensual plan and a question was posed, you know, generally speaking, leading up to the filing, uh, regardless of what the chapter is, there's a lot of tiptoeing around between the parties, the uh, antagonist creditor, for example. So just upon entry into bankruptcy under a subchapter five or, for example, you know, what would change or what would be the advantage and or the tool in the tool belt that would lend itself to the parties suddenly coming together to formulate some sort of a consensual outcome? When I use the word consensual, I don't mean that it's a plan that everyone is a plan proponent. I mean that people will vote in favor of the plan. And the major, major tool that you have as debtors counsel is you have the ability to offer a much worse situation if you're just going to cram down um, there's different things you can offer to creditors, um, different timelines. Uh, and so, you know, your default, you know, you'll get a plan confirmed if you commit all disposable income over three to five years and you can pay your administrative claims and tax priority claims. So anything better than you can do uh, that you can offer than that to a creditor is usually pretty attractive because unless they can object to feasibility, um, they're not going to get better treatment. And, and that's very different than a regular 11 where the creditors have much more leverage because you need your one impaired accepting class. That's what I mean by consensual. It really isn't more, isn't that kumbaya moment. It's that the creditors accept they're not going to do better off if they reject the plan. Um, and you know, that gets into 
claim allowance. And obviously you need a 9019 settlement motion if you're gonna negotiate a, you know, a true um, adjudication of rights or anything like that. But that's really more of what I meant by creditors could do worse if they don't, if they don't get on board. I think that's a very, very helpful, Kate. Thank you. Um, There's and, two other points, Brian, to that. Um, sure. The, um, the, the way the uh, Small Business Reorganization Act is uh, made lends itself to that by the elimination of the absolute priority rule and by the cram down procedures um, on the so-called principal residence. And that's why I said earlier that if you get through the eligibility fight, um, once the creditor knows that the debtor's case is going to survive an eligibility fight, things, just that alone can start to level the playing field because um, the subchapter five gives the debtor the right to be able to pay pro rata to unsecured creditors. That's something taken for granted in a chapter 13, um, but it's not taken for granted in a chapter 11 and it destroys most many confirmations. In fact, it actually hurts um, I, with an individual chapter 11, um, actually individual chapter 11s um, have not been helped nearly as much as small business cases because there is no equivalent in an individual chapter 11 like the Small Business Reorganization Act. So getting through the initial part, um, the, when the creditor realizes what the debtor can do, that, that will help. Uh, Kate and, and Bud, I think it would be good if we clarify that there are classes, impaired classes, and that we do have voting. I think that there was some articles published when SBRA was first announced and made, made law where it gave the impression that the consensual plan, there would actually be no voting. Could you comment on that, please? Yes, you still uh, need to send ballots and uh, all classes. So it, impaired classes are entitled to vote. Unimpaired classes are deemed to have accepted. Uh, so you could always have an objection as to whether it's a real impairment or not. Um, but impaired classes are entitled to vote on the plan. So again, you still need to send the ballots out and your creditors will have an opportunity to vote. It's a rare plan that has I mean, I guess you're paying everybody in full, you really would have an unimpaired, all unimpaired classes, um, but that's not typically what we see. I would agree with that. Another question uh, that came uh, down the wire is with respect to the debt limit, initially when, uh, when the SBRA was first enacted, uh, there, were, there was Warner Construction, Kate, uh, and then uh, you know, not that many filings came down uh, you know, down the wire. Um, and then once CARES Act, uh, the CARES Act increased the limits, it seemed like we saw a lot more cases. And uh, the question posed was, can the panel speak to uh, when uh, the law sunsets, if there will be a dialogue amongst Congress or others to continue the li limits and how much, uh, uh, how viable is the statute without the increased limits or is it not that big of a deal? Well, I don't think we could even begin to fathom a guess what Congress will do, but um, I think that because of what, because of the things like the um, no absolute priority rule and the cram down procedures, 
that is going to make subchapter five always a desirable outcome for a small business in chapter 11. The, the problem for a small business is that if the small business does not have debt above the debt limit, it is a small business under the bankruptcy code. And um, it doesn't have any choice in that. So the Small Business Reorganization Act gives a small business debtor some relief that isn't available in a regular traditional so-called small business case. So I think it's always going to be relevant. I think that if the um, debt limit goes back to the regular debt limit of 2.6 million subject to the three-year cost of living increase, um, it's going to limit the people or the entities that go in, but it's always going to have value as a, um, as a preferred method for a small business debtor in chapter, in chapter 11. That's my thought on that. Yeah, I think I agree with Bud. I think that um, our filings in general in bankruptcy have been somewhat depressed because of all the things, um, the CARES Act, the PPP loans, the idle loans, uh, and I think the fact that our circuit courts were closed and therefore there was a, somewhat of a moratorium on evictions, uh, foreclosures, collections, but I think now that and if our courts uh, become full functioning again, I think the pressure is going to be on that small business community and they're going to be turning to bankruptcy lawyers for assistance. So I think that explains why we've had only nine cases, so to speak, in in Maryland, but I think that um, we're going to get an increase within the next six to 12 months. And I think the CARES Act the, uh, enlargement of the debt uh, is, going to, is going to open up the door for a lot of small businesses that have more than the original amount of debt. I actually think they should increase the, the numbers myself because the people who get squeezed are the individuals who are uh, who do not qualify for 13. Chapter 11 is still relatively expensive and often a debtor will, you know, unless there is some compelling reason to continue the business or they really just need to shed a bad contract or, or something like that, often it doesn't make sense to pay the expense to go through an 11 if you can liquidate, get take care of your personal guarantees and then, you know, start fresh. Um, so I think it's the individual 11s that really are going to be impacted by this because they have no choice. You know, they want to keep their home. Um, seven is not an option for them. They can't qualify for 13 and that's really unfortunate. So I do hope they increase the limits. The cases I think that are being filed now, you know, that would, would, would not qualify, but for the seven and a half million dollar debt limit, they're companies that have really, um, compelling reasons to be an 11. And I, you know, I will reserve comment whether public policy, that's a good thing or a bad thing, but as a bankrupt bankruptcy practitioner, I'd like to see it raised. And I, and I think uh, that's a great segue into what will likely be our final question. Uh, Brian, can I just, let me just add a sure, comment right. to that. Um, one, of the, one of the real tragedies is that the Chapter 13 debt limits have not been raised. If Robert Thomas is, is on this program, he's already saying that to himself. Um, if the Chapter 13 debt limits were raised, more people, individuals would not have to go into chapter 11 simply because they don't qualify for chapter 13. And there, there's many chapter 11s that fail because the people can't make it in chapter 11. Again, because 
they don't have even the benefit of what the Small Business Reorganization Act has done. Um, they're it is a regular Chapter 11 that's simply being done by a human being. And that person would be in a Chapter 13 if the debt limits of Chapter 13 were higher. But for some reason, but with the Chapter 13 debt limits, as well as Chapter 7, no asset compensation, Congress has not moved for a very long time. And um, it, it, people are scratching their head why the CARES Act didn't raise the Chapter 13 debt limits. I know Robert is. And uh, that, that's a perfect, uh, a perfect uh, sort of segue into the final question, which was uh, posed. And essentially, I think there was sort of a, uh, a hope that the uh, subchapter five SBRA would uh, provide some avenue for relief for uh, individuals with high unsecured debt, uh, particularly with uh, student loans. Uh, I know that uh, at least from the consumer uh, realm that uh, taxes can be considered non-consumer debt. Um, and I was just curious uh, in, in this question, uh, whether or not any law has come down on the classification of student loans as uh, uh, or, or uh, individual tax debt with respect to it being a, qualified as a business debt. Is there anything that has come down or? The analysis, that's a, it's a, that, that analysis, it mixes sort of apples and oranges. It's, it's, a, it's that taxes or student loans, part of, part of the student loans, are non-consumer debts. It's not that they're business debts. Um, it's either consumer or non-consumer. That's, that's a separate analysis from the business or commercial enterprise. And that, that, uh, that question, though, highlights the problem um, because the, um, you know, if more people could deal with those in a Chapter 13, they would be better off. They wouldn't have to go into Chapter 11. But there is no, as far as I can tell, the Small Business Reorganization Act offers absolutely no relief to the individual that has to file Chapter 11 instead of Chapter 13, unless they can somehow be construed to be operating a business or engaged in a commercial activity and a, the part of the student loan that's a non-consumer debt or a tax, which is a non-consumer debt, I, don't, I would be shocked if any law said that's commercial activity. It's just, it's not the same. I don't want to put Jeanette on the spot, but I know she reviewed a South Carolina case that dealt with the fact that you don't have to be operating so that you can have commercial debt that's all old. You don't need to be an operating entity to file the 11. But Jeanette, did it make any analysis as to the nature of the tax debt? I, I haven't seen that myself. No, that case just simply dealt with the owner had guaranteed the uh, business debts and so he had they were in fact business debts like you know that were personal guarantees that he had signed and so it didn't talk about any tax debt or student loans or none of those issues occurred in that scenario i would think if you look at the legislative history for um you know the consumer debt limits i i have to believe that it wasn't congress's intention um to prevent people from uh I think that the intention was to prevent running up high consumer debt and then abusing the bankruptcy system. So I have to think that there's maybe some legislative history that would help there, but 
I guess it's one of those undecided issues we would all need to, um, you know, we'd all be eager to see how the court comes out. And the, the nothing changed the dischargeability of the student loan debt and the uh, tax debt. So they would still be something that could be paid in a, in a chapter 11 sub five case, but they have to be paid. So it really didn't, nothing in, in the new act changed anything in that regard, in my opinion. Given the language about um, the IDOTs, you know, the, the personal guarantee, securing your house on a business loan, to me that, I mean, it's just set up for individuals who guaranteed business debt. So having an individual who just has tax debt and really no commercial aspect at all to the case, uh, to me that doesn't seem appropriate, but I, I don't know. Well, if the tax was a payroll tax debt, such as the 100% assessment, that could start to blur the lines because that can be a commercial debt. Um, and that is also evidence of perhaps commercial activity, but regular income tax debt, personal income tax debt, it doesn't seem like it could ever cross that line. We, we can get into a lot of these nuances. We can talk about the, the affiliate rule um, and coupling an individual with a business as long as there's more than 50% of the uh, debt is business, but obviously maybe we'll save that for a subsequent program. Uh, but uh, this has been great. I, uh, I learned a lot and I appreciate uh, everyone who participated today and I'll turn it back to Brian. To, to right. the, Thanks everyone. It was a fantastic program. I do think, as Bud said, you're not going to walk away from this program uh, necessarily being in a position to go ahead and file a case and uh, but I think that it was a very, very constructive uh, program, and it's leading uh, the bar in the right direction to get more familiar with the new law. And I would invite the panelists to uh, make it a tradition that perhaps we could uh, do a follow-up encore program as the law continues to develop and as we get more guidance on how it's going to be implemented and how the interactions between the sub-chapter uh, five trustees and practitioners continue to, to continues to evolve. So I think there's that's an opportunity uh, there. And um, unless anyone has any other comments or closing remarks, um, thank thank you again to our panelists and we look forward to the next the next program.